0: as you're finding your seat, I want to invite you to find a copy of God's Word. Uh, if you brought one with you, now would be the time to pull that out. Um, and uh, if you don't have a copy of Scripture, um, invite you to uh, use one of ours. You can find one underneath one of the seats in front of you. And if you don't own one, you're welcome to take that home uh, with you. That's our uh, gift to you. We'd love for you to be able to see and follow along with what we're learning from seeing in God's Word this morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dave. and one of the pastors here and excited to get into our passage this morning. Uh, this is something we do each and every week. Uh, we believe that the Word of God is uh, inspired. It's inerrant. It's uh, instructive to our lives, and so we place ourselves under its authority. It has authority over us, and um, we uh, we believe that everything in this is helpful and it's true. And uh, this morning is is no different. Uh, we're continuing in a series uh, through the book of Hebrews, and so you can open up to Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter six. We're going to finish up chapter six this morning, which brings us to about the halfway point in the book. Uh, we're going to continue this throughout the uh, the summer, and so if you're uh, opening to Hebrews six nine, uh, just wanted to uh, kind of catch us up because we're we're sort of in the middle of a, a sort of a parenthetical kind of a um, little bit of a, a sidebar that that the author is making here. And if you've been with us the last. A couple of weeks, then, uh, then you know. But just in case, um, uh, maybe you missed it, or or uh, or maybe this is your first time with us. As we've been walking through uh, the author here, we don't know exactly who wrote it, uh, but we know something about the audience that received it uh, because we can kind of, you know, the things that are being written to, the way that it's being said, and the kind of timing of it. And so um, we we look at it, we see that we know that it was written to believers, uh, probably near or in Rome, uh, probably. Jewish believers, uh, they, they had an understanding of the Old Testament and, and kind of the, the, the Jewish faith um, in God, and, but now they're, they're following Christ and it's been difficult and there's persecution and there's conflict and there is opposition to them as a small kind of struggling church. And so this, this is a letter, um, it kind of almost reads more like a sermon written to encourage them and to uplift them in that. And as the author is talking about, a couple of weeks ago we saw that he, he mentions this name, and we're going to get to this next week, okay? It's been kind of building back to this. But he mentions this name, and he says, listen, you have a great high priest who is after the order of Melchizedek. And then he kind of like catches himself. He's like, wait, I can't even talk about Melchizedek because of kind of where you're at in your journey and kind of in your walk with Jesus. And so beginning in 511, kind of the chapter before, he sort of takes a little bit of a detour and he says, listen, I want to tell you more about this. Like I've got some rich stuff that I can give you. This would be extremely helpful for you, but I can't because you're still feasting on uh, milk. Uh, you haven't moved on to the meat, to the to the mature things. And so we said last week, it's kind of like chicken nuggets and uh, mac and cheese, um, to which I, I got some pictures this week of like, you know, Mac and cheese and chicken nuggets being fed to kids. Um, some of you, um, you know, are probably curious on the warm hot chocolate update. Like Levi is still loving his warm hot chocolate. Yesterday, he tried to convince me that he could have three of them, and I said no. But we're going down, not up, okay? And so he's trying to have more. But but this is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you're you're not moving on to uh, what adults eat. You're still kind of feeding like like children. Like you're still asking for your hot dog to be cut up when I'm trying to feed you like some really um, some rich stuff here. And so. He kind of gives this assessment, and then he, at the same time, gives a harsh warning. And that's what last week was. It was a harsh warning of, listen, if you don't, if you don't grow in maturity, then I'm worried for your soul. I'm worried that you're going to miss out, that you're not going to understand the depth and the riches of who Christ is, that you're not going to fully believe because it's one thing to just sort of attend and to maybe come to a service like this or to even open your Bible. I mean, it even indicates last week that you can, you can taste, you can experience, you can sort of understand or know about God or who he is or what the Holy Spirit has to offer, but not fully embrace him as Savior and thus not truly be saved. See, all of us are in need of a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior and so what he's worried about is that they've tasted just a, a, a portion. He's not writing to believers. He's writing to those that are kind of in the church, but, but, but not all in, right? They're just kind of on the fringe, and they they're sort of have one foot in. And so he gives this warning. Now he's following it up with a, an incredible encouragement. There's such an encouragement here this morning that we're going to see because he wants to encourage, and he's going to kind of make his way back to this guy Melchizedek who we're going to look at uh, next week. But this morning, the encouragement is sort of, uh, it's kind of framed in this way. It's it's an anchor of hope for the people who are struggling, right? He wants to give them something that they can have a foundation in, an anchor in. And so this picture is given today of an anchor. And I don't know about you, if you've kind of grown up or spent some time around church, I think we think of anchor as kind of used a lot, or sort of an example, um, kind of a picture that we use in relationship to our, our faith. But I was... Actually, surprise, I learned this week this is the only place in the New Testament, possibly even the Bible, where the imagery of anchor is used. Like in the Gospels, it references anchors, but they're like actual anchors. Like they're, the disciples are fishing and they put down their anchor or something like that. But this is the only place that the imagery of an anchor is used. And it's so appropriate because, again, the picture is, is that this small group of believers are sort of, you know, they're, they're being tossed around on the waves a little bit. And they're, they're kind of, they're questioning. Some of them are even considering walking away from their faith altogether, walking away from Jesus altogether. And he's like, no, no, let me give you an anchor that you can put down so that you can weather this storm. And so he gives them an anchor of hope. The big idea this morning, let me just give it to you and then we're going to see it unfold as we walk through the passage this morning, it's this, is that God desires that your hope in Christ will be the anchor of encouragement for your soul. So this is a passage of encouragement. It's a passage meant to serve your soul and to uplift and build up and to give confidence to you and your faith this morning. And I trust that it's going to serve as that way. Before we go any further, let me just pray and let's just ask God to, to do just that. Would he encourage us as we walk through these verses together? Lord, we uh, recognize uh, that for many of us, if we're not there today, uh, we, we have been or, or someday we will be. God, where we are questioning or confused or discouraged, and we need an anchor for our soul. God, we want to find that in you, and your word has that for us this morning. I pray that this would serve as um, just an encouragement for us. God, would you teach us as we walk through it? Spirit, we ask that you would uh, just be leading even our thoughts as our our, our minds, and and God, even our hearts uh, wrestle with these truths. God, seek to apply them to our lives. God, I pray that you would give us ears to listen and hearts to learn. God, we thank you for what you have for us this morning, and we pray um, that you would lead us in it. And in in we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's read the first few verses together, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 6. It says this. It says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust, or unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Uh, Here's the first truth that we're going to see this morning. It's this, is that we are called to and and encouraged to imitate the example of hope in Christ. We're going to kind of, as we walk through this, you're going to see there's an example of hope given, but we're called to imitate that. Uh, to, 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 to hold on to that in the same way. Let's kind of walk our way through it and sort of unpack it. Again, he just gave a harsh warning. So he says in verse 9, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case we feel sure of better things. This would lead us to believe that, again, he's writing to some that maybe are connected with the church or kind of on the fringe of the church, but, but by and large he believes that most of them know and have received Christ as Savior. And he says, I'm writing to you about better things, things that belong to salvation, He's like, my hope is that you have known and tasted who Christ is and that you are following him and you're going to experience the blessings that come as a result. He says, for God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown in his name and serving the saints as you still do. He's acknowledging that there's fruit, right? That they've come, they've received Christ and now um, they're showing, uh, they're showing uh, love toward, uh, toward others and uh, that they're living out their faith. They're serving the saints. And so it's taking taking root, but his desire is that they would continue in that, that they would show earnestness and have this full assurance of hope all the way to the end. And this is kind of the idea that we've been seeing here. It's that, um, you know, we talked talked a little bit throughout this series about the security that's found in Christ, right? Like if if he adopts you into his family, his word in many other places would indicate that he can't, he won't unadopt you. Right? Like, if he's forgiven your sins, there's nothing you can do to kind of sin greater, and then now you release or you know, for, you, you can somehow move out of that forgiveness. But what he's saying is that people who are saved will endure to the end. If you're truly saved, if you're truly in Christ, that you're going to see this fruit grow, you're going to see maturity, you're going to see sanctification happening in their life. And the desire is. The desire of the author is that all of them would have this earnestness and that there would be hope all the way up to the end. So he doesn't want to see them drifting away. He doesn't want to see them giving up or or walking away. And so the way that they do that is by, he says, imitating. Right? He says, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, this is really helpful for us this morning. So it says that that, there's got to be earnestness. Um, Blaise Pascal, I found this this kind of definition of of earnestness. I thought it was pretty good here. It says, earnestness is enthusiasm tempered by reason. So he's like, I want you to have this earnestness, enthusiasm, tempered by reason. Like, there's some reason behind this. It's not just kind of getting all excited and kind of ramped up. But there's an earnestness to your faith. There's reason for it. But I want you to have this full assurance and it's a full assurance of what? Hope. Hope. Now, let's talk about this idea or this word hope. We use this in all sorts of, you know, all sorts of context and ways, right? Like, I hope that the Packers actually do trade Aaron Rodgers, okay? Like, that was, that was realized, okay? Like, I, you know, I, I hope that it keeps raining because we really need it. Or I hope that it doesn't rain because I don't have a yard and I don't care. You know, it's like, you know, I, I like all that. Like I, I, I hope in, in certain things. We use that word kind of hope that way. Um, the way that, though, it's being used here and oftentimes in Scripture is not the, the subject. OK, like the, the way that like you have hope. That's kind of the subject, but rather the object. Like what your what is the hope? Does that make sense? Like, let me say it this way. Um, now, you can, like, hope for the best, and that's something that you sort of muster up or that you kind of, you know, convince yourselves of. Um, a lot of times it's based in optimism. Some of you are, like, glass-half-empty uh, sort of folks. Um, you're probably married. If you're married, you're married to someone who's probably a glass-half-empty. I don't know why, but it kind of, you know, it's half-full, half-empty sort of attract uh, in, that, in that terms, and you're like, man, why are you always so negative? Why are you always so positive? Like, it's like, you know, there's got to be a realist here, like right? And so... There's kind of different ways to approach this, but, but it's not, hope is not just optimism, glass half full, kind of wishing for the best. That's not what it's talking about here. Rather, this is, this is a hope that's being given. It's, it's a hope that, that is not dependent on you. It's a hope that you can be sure of. It's the source of where hope comes from. And so picture, like, the author is kind of wrapped this thing up, and he's got a present for the people. And he's like, I want to give you. This box and in it is hope. I'm giving you hope. It's not something you create. Like this is this is hope, and it's it's a hope that's real, it's a hope that you can you know hold and, 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 and count on and trust in, and it's a hope that's gonna carry you through to the end. That's kind of the idea. So we have to understand what what this idea of hope is. The other picture that we have here is not sluggish, but imitators. That word sluggish could also be translated slothfulness. I always have just like kind of a low-key fascination with sloths. I think they're kind of funny. Um, they're just so weird. Like, <laughs> you know, they, 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 uh, they don't really do much. They're, they're kind of gross. And uh, I don't know how I saw this, but um, some video popped up this week, and, and I saw this guy uh, ziplining, and there was a sloth like hanging on the zipline, and he just like ran into him. And then he's just like hanging out, and there's a sloth like in front of him. And there's just a little standoff like on the zip line, and the sloth's like, what? You know, like he's not going anywhere. He's just sitting there, and he's like, I didn't think he wanted to touch him. It was just like, that's all it was. I, I don't know whatever happened. I'm like, what? what's the end of the story? Like, what, how long did they just hang there? But, but this sloth, this idea, right? We have a picture of sloths, like not sloths, not just kind of hanging out sort of, but that there's motivation, that there's movement, that there's, and that's what he says, intention, uh, imitators, there's intentionality, there's a pattern, there's a pathway, You know, the idea here is that you wouldn't be sluggish, but that you would have those that you're imitating and living out this example of hope. What does it mean to have hope? You know, there's interesting studies being done about the influence of people around you. I don't think this is like a new concept. I think we understand that the people that we hang out with, right, the people that we kind of run with, it influences us. That's why parents, you know, want so badly for their children to, like, make good friends, right? We start at young ages and say, hey, you know, got to get some good friends, or, or we're kind of worried, hey, I don't like that friend so much, right? Because we know that it's going to affect, affect us. Well, that doesn't go away after childhood. Uh, Jim Rohn is this motivational speaker. He's kind of credited with saying that, um, that you're, you're an average of the five people that you most hang out with. Now, that sounds good, but I, I think it's, like, what studies are showing is it's not just that. So it's not just take your five people that you're around the most and kind of average them and that's who, otherwise I would, <laughs> oh my goodness, I have four daughters and a son and then my wife and so the, I hang out with them quite a bit. And so, yeah, I'd like to think that it's not just the five people that you most hang out with um, because I'd be drinking warm hot chocolate and eating, you know, chicken nuggets and, and, and mac and cheese all the time. But but no, I, I think it's more than that. I think our, our minds and the way that we are created, we're this tapestry of, of a whole bunch of ideas and, and influences. And so your parents, your siblings, your coworkers, your neighbors, even the things that we read, the movies we watch, the music we listen to, like it all kind of, I think in small ways, affects who we are. And so certainly the people that you're most around, you're going to start to reflect. Maybe you've even seen that. Maybe you've seen that in your life, that the people that you hang around, you're like, man, I, I like being around them because when I'm around them, it does motivate me. Maybe you've got some friend who's like super fit and when you're around them, you have a hard time, you know, eating, That like you go out to eat with them and you're like, okay, fine, I'll get a salad too, you know, and, and, and you know, but if they're not there, there's no way. Like, it's it just, we see the influence of that. But this is the concept, this is sort of the idea that the author is saying here. He says, listen, it's like my hope is that you're gonna have the full assurance of hope until the end, that you wouldn't be sluggish You know, there's some motivation behind this. How? He says that I want you to be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. You know, your friends and who you hang out with matter. It is so good for us to be together with one another. That's why I think, you know, we put so much stock in our small groups, but even our service teams, even just the relationships within the church are so good for us. Because we need to be around others that are imitating Christ, that are living out examples of faith and patience. And they influence us, they impact us. And so I just wonder, you know, if we were to kind of pause here, who are you imitating in your life? Is there someone that you've intentionally said that you're seeking to pattern your life after I can't remember if I've ever shared this before. I've been preaching long enough that I'm going to start to repeat myself here, okay? But um, uh, I have people in my life, like I, I have some examples of people, of parents. And so I'm like, man, I want to kind of pattern my parenting after them. I see godly ways that they're parenting, and so I want to do it like them. And so I kind of picture them and, and have learned from them and kind of, you know, imitate some things with them. I have other pastors that I really respect, and, and some of them are, are you know, more well known, others, many of them are not, and, and you would, you've never heard of them. And then, but that's the kind of pastor that I want to be. And so I, I have like people, and then so, and then I see friends, or I see just in, in a, you know, just a spiritual walk, there's, there's been people that I've, I've seen and I want to imitate after. What the author is saying here is, and we're going to get to it as we approach later in the book, but there's many people throughout scripture, even if you don't have someone around you that's imitating, that's, that you can imitate well in this, scripture is full of men and women who are great examples that we can imitate the patience and the faith of waiting for the hope that's found in Christ. And so the first thing if we want to have this anchor of hope in Christ, it begins by imitating the examples that we have both around us, but especially in God's word. And he goes on to give an example of it. And it's not a surprise here. The author loves Abraham. Um, and after, I believe it's Luke and um, John, Abraham is mentioned um, the most in this book uh, here. But, but let's continue on in verse 13. It says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise that the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Here's the thing that we, uh, that we need to grow in if we want to have this anchor of hope for our souls, that we need to recognize the significance of hope in Christ. We need to recognize the significance. That's what he's trying to do. He uses Abraham as an example, but he says, Abraham understood how significant it was that God had not only promised, but he had also sworn an oath to him. Let's unpack what that means. First off, we've got to do a little bit of, um, I think, just kind of review. Uh, many of you maybe know who Abraham is, but if you don't, Abraham was um, chosen by God to be uh, the start of a new work that God was going to do. He chose him out and he said to him, he made him a promise, and he says, "I'm going to make you into a great nation. The whole entire world is going to be blessed through your descendants." There was a problem, though, when he made this promise. Abraham and Sarah were quite advanced in years. That's a really polite, nice way of saying they were a little older, okay? And they didn't have any children. And so, you know, obviously, the first kind of problem with that is like, great, God, if you're going to make me into a nation, you're going to have to um, give us a child. And uh, that, that's kind of, those, those days have kind of passed, right? That ship has sailed, But he promised that he was going to do it, and it wasn't. There was like some time between the promise until when he finally fulfilled it, and he gave them a son, and they named him Isaac. And so now they had this son, and this promise was beginning to be realized. But God came to him one day and says, Abraham, I want you to do something. I want you to take Isaac, your son, and I want you to sacrifice him. And so I'm sure Abraham kind of double-checked and like, I'm just making sure I'm hearing this right, you know, before I go through this, right? This is The son that you gave me that's going to be the start of this promise, I'm going to take him and I'm going to sacrifice him. And he was confident. God had called him to do that. And so he did. He made the journey. Uh, should have been a one-day journey, he took three, like made the journey to the mountain, had all the supplies, everything there, to the point that, that they're on the mountain, him and his son, Isaac. Isaac's asked, like, where's the, where's the, where's the sacrifice? He's like, God's gonna provide it, you know? And, and so he gets to the point of ready to take his son's life, and God stopped him. And he, it proved, or it showed, we see throughout many places, and including Hebrews, we're gonna see it later, but, but it was an example of Abraham's faith in God. It doesn't say it in Genesis, but it says it later on that, that, God, that Abraham believed that God would, if he had to do it, that he would either raise him from the dead or he would provide a different way. Something was going to happen. There was so much faith and so much trust in God in that moment that Abraham was willing to even go through with this thing that made absolutely no sense. And so this is the example that's set before us. It says, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Abraham was one of such men. Right? He had faith in God so much so to the point that he went to this place. But right after it, this is how God comforts and responds to Abraham. It's from Genesis 22, beginning in verse 16. This is where he swore this oath that is talked about here. It says, but by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Notice the first part there. It says that I myself have sworn. See, the author here is saying that, that God made a promise to Abraham, then he came back and said, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's what he's quoting here is Genesis 22, uh, kind of 16 through 18. He's like, He patiently waited, then obtained the promise. Uh, the author then goes on in verse 16 to talk about human oaths. He's comparing it. He says, For people swear by something greater than themselves in all the disputes, an oath is for final confirmation. We know this, right? Again, go back, remember all the way back to when you were a little child. How did you, you know, promise or sort of make sure that your siblings or friends knew that you meant what you were saying, right? All lots of ways. Like maybe you pinky promised, right? I don't know if that's supposed to symbolize, like, your pinky's going to get broken or something if that, you know, if you don't, I don't, is that what a pinky promise is? I always, that's how I always took it, but it feels very sort of mob-like that that's, you know, that that's kind of what's happening there. Or, or you know, it's like, hey, across my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, you know, like, I don't know if that's doing anyone good, but that's, you know, how we would, would do it. Or maybe you'd swear on something else, right? Like, I swear on the grave of my, my grandma. Like, that's pretty intense. Wow, okay. Or like you swear to God himself, swear to God, right? What are you doing in that moment? You're trying to appeal to something greater. And that oath, that appeal to something greater is sort of to allow for the, the, the understanding, like, no, this is serious. Like, I mean what I'm saying. I'm trying to appeal to something greater than myself. And we always go up with the appeal, right? Because sometimes we need something to sort of, to kind of cut through the, the muddiness. Why do we even need an oath? Well, Because we're, we're, we're like inconsistent all the time. Right? We're so prone to saying things that we don't mean. Like, my kids, my <laughs> they know that they'll ask me something. Like, hey, Dad, can we, can we go for a walk later today? We love going for walks in the evening in the summer. It's like one of our favorite things. And I'm like, you know, if I'm not like paying attention, sure, sure, yeah, no problem. Like, they know to re- like, Dad, are you, like, did you hear what I just asked? Are you really, like, is that really happening? Like, you know, they don't say this, but basically, like, Dad, do you swear, right? <laughs> swear to God that we're going, you know, I mean, that's what they're trying to get. They want an oath because... It's easy for me to just say it, but is it actually going to happen? My roommate and I in college, we used to play pranks on each other all the time, and we would just just constantly deceive each other, so much so to the point that we actually had to come up with a way that we could tell each other the truth when, when we really needed to believe that we were not lying to each other. And so this is like a total Bible school thing, but aletheia is the Greek word for truth. And so if we ever said, like, no, 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 aletheia, that was like, okay, we could never break aletheia. So we could lie like like nobody's business to each other. But but if we said Aletheia, like we wouldn't break Aletheia. That's the idea. This is like kind of the human oath thing. And again, we always go up with oaths, not down. And so like you would never, well, maybe you would. I would never swear on the life of a cat because that doesn't mean much to me, okay? And so like, you know, I'm not going to, I swear on this piece of gum, right? If I break my oath, like I have to give you this gum. It's like, fine, you can have the gum, right? You always go up with it. See, the problem, or what what he's saying here, he says, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all the disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. He's like, what about God? He's like, God desired to show something more convincingly to Abraham. So then what did he do? How does he, he show something more convincingly to Abraham, and then to us, the heirs of the promise, of the unchangeable character of his purpose? So what did he do? He guaranteed it with an oath. What did he say in Genesis 22? What was his oath? What was he swearing on? He said, I swear by myself. By myself I've sworn. Because think about it, right? Where can God swear that goes up? He can't swear on the heavens and the earth. I mean, those can pass away. He could take that away. He can't swear on anybody or anything out. Like, he's greatest that there is. And so what is he doing? He's swearing on himself, and he's saying, listen, it's on me. I'm promising you, and I'm doubling down on the promise that if that promise is ever broken, it is solely and totally on me. The question is, do we understand the significance of what this is? What he's saying here is that by two unchangeable things, what are the two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath? So God has promised that he will be your God, that he will be your savior. And he has given an oath. Where does the oath come in? Well, he's, he's gonna reference this. He already has, but he's gonna reference this again. Psalm 110, verse four. says, the Lord has sworn, right? Another oath that, the God, that God has given. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of, there's that name again, Melchizedek. And so he's kind of building back to this idea of Melchizedek, but he's like, God has promised Jesus, and he's given this sworn this oath that Jesus would be our high priest. And he's guaranteed it by two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, and it's impossible for God to lie. And so here's the thing. How do we know? How do we know that God will not lose those whom he saves? Because God cannot lie. He's promised and he's given an oath that he would do it. So it's possible for someone who has been saved by Jesus to lose their salvation if God's a liar. But since God's not a liar, it will never happen. Those whom God saves, he will keep for all of eternity. This is the promise that he's trying to say. He's like, listen, do you understand the significance of this? If I could, if I could just kind of drive this home with one more illustration. Some of you, I don't even know if this show is still on, but some of you remember the Antiques Roadshow? Just be, is it still on? Okay, fantastic. Show of hands if you kind of like have ever watched an episode of the Antiques Roadshow, okay? Yeah, the rest of you, you don't know what you're missing, okay? It's fantastic. They bring in, people bring in stuff that they find or have around their house or whatever that they think has value, and they they get it assessed. And sometimes it is like, yeah, this is... (laughs) see the Target, you know, uh, the, the, the Target logo on here, this isn't valuable, you know, like other times, it's like oh, I missed that, you know, and like, but other times, it's like, it's so valuable, right, and then there's this moment, I think there's this picture of kind of like, there's, you know, for many people, you know, there's this moment where they're like, would you be surprised if I told you, right, like, like, I don't know what he said here, I'm not sure where this came from, but my guess is that was probably owned by like Paul Revere or something, <laughs> right, and it's worth like a trillion dollars, and she bought it for a dollar at a garage sale, okay, that's, what just happened here. And she has no idea the value, and she just found out. She's like, You have a trillion dollar Paul Revere, whatever that thing is, like kind of, <laughs> I'm not sure, but, but, but that's, you know, and, and now the value has been assessed, and she's like, I can't believe this, right? This is what the author is trying to do for us. He's saying, Listen, you need to recognize the significance of how how you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, the way that the promise of God applies in this situation. He has double guaranteed it by two unchangeable things. God cannot lie. Do you understand it? Some of you are going to go home today. You're going to try and figure out, like, what what do I have laying around the house that might be worth something, right? What What can I get some value for? Here's the thing. Some of us, we have this truth, and we've never even thought about this. I think the application out of this point is just that we would think and that we would recognize, that we would just take stock and say, God, thank you. Who are we that you would do this, but you've placed your reputation on the line? And why would God, I mean, think about it. Why would God give an oath to begin with? Is his his word not good? Right? Does he need to give the oath? Isn't a promise from God good enough? Why would God go to all the lengths to give us an oath? Did you catch it? It says it right here. It says, God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. Why? Well, if you keep going down, it says that there might be a strong encouragement. God was doing it for us. He's basically saying, listen, I can just promise, and that's good enough, but I'm going to go as far as to give an oath, to swear by myself, that I will not lose my own. What an incredible promise. Let's recognize the significance of what God has done, what it means to have hope in Christ. The author continues. Let's read the second half of verse 18 we just did, but let's kind of keep going. It says, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here's the thing. This is what God has for us and wants for us this morning. He wants us to be encouraged by the assurance of hope in Christ. He wants us to be encouraged. What God is doing is he has gone to every length, he's done everything that he can to make sure that we would not have a wavering confidence in his unshakable character and love and security for us. And he's done this. He says that, that you might have strong encouragement to hold fast to this hope set before us. It's a sure and it's a steadfast anchor for the soul. Now we skipped right over. There's kind of this imagery that I, I think is so helpful for us. Notice where it says that we who have fled for refuge... My, um, my assumption is that this is kind of a reference. Again, the, the, the original recipients of this letter probably would have had this picture in mind, but, but God had set up cities around the nation to be refuge cities. Uh, and so if you, you, know, you know, were to commit a crime or like say you know, there's an accident and, and someone dies, well, you could run to this city, you could stay in this city And you could rest assured that you would receive a fair trial to find out, you know, was that murder or was it an accident? But you wouldn't be chased down by the family or someone who's trying to get revenge in the the incident of a crime. So there was these refugee cities throughout the land, throughout the nation that you could go to, and you could find that there was going to be a fair trial. That picture, I think, is what's at play here. It says, we who have fled for refuge, so it's like we have sinned, right, We've messed up. We are in danger, but we have a place to run for refuge and that we might await a fair trial. Now we know that we're guilty. And that's where Christ comes in. And Christ has said, No, I'm going to take your sin upon myself. I'm going to bear the weight of responsibility. I'm going to die for you in your place. And so we flee for refuge. We find out that we have a Savior who comes that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Listen, church, I, I wanted so very badly, it just didn't feel like a prudent thing to do with our budget, but I wanted to put on all of your chairs. You know, sometimes you come in, and there's little you know, things there. Um, next week you're going to come in, there's going to be something on your chair um, for Father's Day. But, but I wanted so very badly to buy all of us like an anchor. Okay, So you just come in, and there's just like an anchor sitting out in your seat. And, um, and, and just to give all of us just an anchor. Why? Because what a picture that God is giving us. And again, this is the only place. And for sure, the whole New Testament. I think the entire uh, Bible, I, I, I was looking, and I'm like, I don't think it's anywhere else, that this is the only place, this imagery. But again, I said that, that this is like the author is kind of wrapped up this present, and he's giving us this box, and inside this box is this picture. It's an anchor. That we have an anchor for our souls. What does an anchor do? Well, if you've ever been on a boat, uh, my guess is you probably haven't been, most of us, uh, uh, most of us have probably not been on a boat in the middle of a storm. Like that, we we, we tend to go on boats, you know, on on holidays when when there's, you know, the waves are being caused by other boats and jet skiers and and all of that, right? But, but, But an anchor is something that holds fast so the wind, the waves, the storm, it doesn't move. It's not shifting. It can't be blown away. If you are caught in a storm, if you're on a ship, the only hope, if especially, I mean, think about in this time, like they didn't have GPS. They didn't have LED lights that they could kind of shine everywhere. They didn't have navigational systems that were going to kind of guide them to safety. They, they only knew kind of where. The, and so at dark, if they got blown off course, like where are the danger? Where is it? We don't know. So we're just going to drop anchor until we can figure things out. And they would just hope that that was going to hold fast, and that they weren't going to drift, and that they weren't going to go away. Like that's that's kind of the picture here, and he's saying that you have a steadfast anchor for the soul. And where is this anchor? Rooted, because again, an anchor is only as good as what it gets dropped into. I've dropped an anchor before when I was fishing, and it was kind of down in some uh, sort of sandy type, um, and it wasn't the right anchor for sand. And so we tended to kind of drift a little bit, right? Slowly, we're kind of moving our way around. Now, if you drop an anchor in like some good Wisconsin lake mud, you know, and you've got that, like, you're not going anywhere, right? That's that you can't even get that thing back up when you want to. And so, um, you know, that's kind of the picture. But where is the anchor? It's not in some sand. It's not just kind of sitting on the surface. Where is the anchor. There's so much imagery going on here. It's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What's the curtain? Well, the curtain was a thick tapestry that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. It symbolized the very presence of God and the people of God. And so you have here the church on one side, right, living in the world, being tossed about by the waves, Right, being onslaught of this onslaught of, of, of opposing doctrine and, and ideas and thinking and philosophies and persecution and all of this attack kind of coming on, and they're able to cast the anchor. Where does the anchor go? It goes on the other side of the curtain. Well, what's on the other side of the curtain? The very presence of God. And so the anchor is being, it's rooted in God Himself, in His presence, in the heavenly places. And the Holy of Holies, the hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our hope is in Christ. He is in the heavenly places. He is the one that has gone before. And so our hope is in him. And that's where it holds fast. Let's kind of bring this all together. Again, an anchor is only so good as to the place where it is rooted. And I know for some of us, and maybe you're there now, right? You feel like you're being tossed around. You feel like the storm is just kind of battling against you. And maybe if you're not there now, you can remember back to a time when it was. We sang that song earlier uh, about the promises of God, right? There's a, the line in there. It says, we trust you. We trust you. In all things, we trust you. I know for some of you, you have come into this room and you have sang that line, enjoy having the best week that you ever had, and it's an easy line to sing. Others of you, maybe you're in this place even today, you come into this place and that line comes up on the screen, and for a moment you have to question, God, can I say this? Do I trust you? I know for some of you as we're singing that, it's like you want to believe, right? But there's part of your heart that's like, we trust you. We trust you, God. In all things, we trust you, right? Maybe you just received that news from the doctor. Maybe you just got notice about that loved one. Maybe, you know, the, the, the things that you were hoping were going to turn around at work aren't. Or, or maybe it's just like, whatever it might be, you're coming in here with this weight. And the question is, is like, do we have a place that we can set down anchor when the wind, when the waves, when the storm is coming? And what he's trying to say, again, to this storm-battered church is that there is a place, there's an anchor for your soul. And it's in the very person of Jesus Christ who dwells in the heavenly places, who, who has the ability to pass beyond the curtain, who has come and represented us before God the Father, and he forgives sins, and he loves, and he changes, and he transforms, and he is at work. This is where your hope and your confidence is, church. That's what he's trying to say, and that message is still very true for us today. God has given us a promise of his faithfulness to us, and he has sworn by himself, and God cannot lie. And so listen, I don't know if you're in, again, best week of your life, worst week of your life, whatever just happened, but I'm telling you, the anchor for your soul is found only in the person of Jesus Christ, and he is someone that we can have confidence in, and assurance and security in. There are so many promises throughout God's word. I love it when we read scripture. Don't you guys love it when we do that? I love that. I love just hearing God's word spoken and it stands on its own. There's a couple of promises that came to mind as I was was studying this week. I don't have them on the screen. I just want to share them with you. Listen to this. Romans 8, 37 and 39 says this. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Philippians 1.6 says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And later in this very letter, we're going to come across this, Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Listen, again, that anchor is only as good as where it is rooted. Our anchor is rooted in Christ himself. We have hope for our soul today today. And I don't know if you need this today, but someday you're going to, right? Storms will come. The question is, is where are you going to drop anchor when they do? I want to share this. Uh, This comes from a hymn. It was written in 1902 uh, by Daniel B. Towner. And it says this. It says, I can feel the anchor fast as I meet each sudden blast. And the cable, though unseen, bears the heavenly strain between through the storm, I safely ride until the turning of the tide. And it holds, my anchor holds. Blow your wildest then, O gale, on my bark so small and frail. By his grace, I shall not fail. For my anchor holds, my anchor holds. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the anchor for our soul that we can find in you. God, we recognize that apart from you, we are adrift. God, we are in danger. Lord, there is nothing else that we can put our confidence in, that we know without a shadow of a doubt, God, that it is unchanging. Father, thank you that you do not lie. God, you have guaranteed by your own admission, God, based on your character and who you are, God, that you are at work here. And so, Father, we put our trust and our faith in you. Jesus, we look to you as our only salvation, God, our only savior. God, I pray that we would find the hope that we so desperately need, that when storms come, when there's uncertainty, God, that we would know that you are still at work and that you are still who you say that you are. Jesus, we thank you for your tender, kind leadership over our lives. God, we want to follow you. As we sang earlier, we want to declare in our hearts that we trust you. In all things, Jesus, we trust you. We trust that you are doing what is best. God, not just for our good, but for your glory. And so, Jesus, we look to you. We worship you. We declare that you are our God. You cannot lie. And that our hope is in you. Jesus, thank you for the promise of assurance, God, the anchor for our soul that you've given us here. We pray that we would take root of that, that we would hold tight to that, knowing, God, just how strong it is. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.